you can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15, John chapter 15, and I'll go ahead and ask you in the beginning if you would pray for me today. Uh, Kevin, you're not the only one with a little itch in the back of your throat. I don't believe I'm sick, but I can feel it there, and I pray the Lord would uphold my voice and speak clearly through me here this morning. Um, I do have an, uh, an apology to make to you once again. Your bulletin will tell you that we're going to cover all the way through verse 17. And I keep doing this, keep overshooting, but I trust that it'll be exactly what the Lord has in mind. Basically what I'm telling you from now on when you see the, the Scriptures presented in your bulletin, just realize that's kind of a, a suggestion. That's, that's where we're trying to go, but we may not get that far. And Today we will not. Um, at this time, I would like to ask you to go ahead and stand with me if you're able, and we'll read together from John chapter 15. I'd like to <clears throat> look together with you beginning at verse 12, and we'll go ahead and read down through verse 17, um, and then pray together again. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Thank you. you may be seated. As you're being seated, go with me once again to the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you would meet with us now. Oh God, I, it would seem there's a sense in which you already certainly have been meeting with us in the worship through song and the reading of your word and the prayers that have gone up and the fellowship we've enjoyed. All these things, oh God, you have been in our midst. Father, I pray that you would continue with us, that you by your presence and your spirit would move in our souls as we look into your word. Father, we don't just want to grow in our understanding of truth, but let that truth drive us to an experiential knowledge of our God. We want to know that we've met with our God and have our souls impacted by it. Lord, I ask for grace and power to do what I know that I cannot do without you. I pray, Lord, that you would close my mouth where I would speak wrongly, that you would stop me from going in any direction that is not glorifying to you. But Father, that there would be power and authority where you would have me to speak. Father, I pray you would subdue us, that there would be a stillness that settles over us. Deal with our souls in such a way that we know we've been dealt with by God. Oh, Lord, teach us what love is. In Jesus name. Amen. The initial title that I had given this message was love begets love. And that's a very fitting idea in light of our section of Scripture here. But in further study, when I realized I wasn't going to make it down as far as I thought, it occurred to me to, before we deal with this idea of love at work in us, producing love for one another, and we'll touch on that today, but before we focus on that, what is love? I suggest to you we retitle this message from this point forward today, what is love? Love. 
What is it? Our culture and society are prepared to tell you what love is, aren't they? As a matter of fact, there are many people that would say the greatest need in the world right now is love. That there would be more love. And that's a true statement. That is the greatest need. That there would be real love in the world. But the world's definition of love can never produce that which is most needed. And let me say from the very beginning today this. That our understanding of the love of God is going to shape everything else in our lives. I truly, truly understand that to be part of what's communicated in our text here today. You know, it was A.W. Tozer who said, whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I might even go a step further with with Tozer and say, whatever comes into your mind when you think about what God's love is, is perhaps the most important thing about you. With those thoughts in mind, and how do we come to a right understanding of what love actually is in light of our verses today. John 15 and verse 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, let me point out to you that this statement about loving one another does not exist on its own. That this is actually, Jesus is continuing the same thought that He's been giving up until this point. In other words, you remember last week we're seeing Jesus emphasizing this keeping of commandments. Just follow this idea of either law keeping, fruit bearing or commandment keeping and listen to these things before in our text. Jesus begins in verse two and says every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. What is the fruit? What is the fruit Jesus is talking about? He goes on in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Here's the point. This fruit that we're supposed to be bearing, what is it? Well, then he goes on and he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Again, here's this. The fruit of abiding in Christ is there's going to be something done. This fruit has to do with these words or the, the commands of Christ. And then in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And then we get down to verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So there's an emphasis on commandment keeping. And most of you, and myself included, if I'm honest, when you first read that, you think commandments Jesus is talking about is primarily me living and doing righteous things. Me obeying perhaps the Ten Commandments. If that's what comes to your mind, that's not necessarily wrong, but Jesus makes it clear in verse 12 exactly which commandment He's primarily talking about. He says, this is the commandment. In other words, He's been telling us these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That's where we ended last time. The commandments that are to be produced by our abiding in the love of Christ have to do primarily with us loving one another. Now surely keeping the commandments of God as they're expressed in the Scripture in an external way, that kind of sanctification, surely that's important. And there is an application to that. But the primary thing Jesus is telling us is that we would love one another. In other words, I'm arguing that all of this pruning work the Father's doing and cutting us, cutting things away from us, that we bear more fruit, all of that has a relationship with how we are towards one another in the body of Christ. That's a primary thrust of what Jesus is saying here. If you think the primary fruit or growth that Jesus is talking about, if your focus is primarily on either a theological awareness of some kind or, or some sort of a, a manifestation of, of deliverance from these gross sins that exist in the world, well, I'm not going to tell you that's not true. But the only way you ever come to enter into those things is going to be by this, this, this love is the center and focus. Now, I can imagine that a message like the one I'm giving now, at least on its surface, is going to appeal to many people in the world today. I mentioned this already, that this message of love and the focus on the love of God in Christ, there are many modern progressives 
which would be interested in this message. At this time, here today, and you can take a universalist like Rob Bell or someone like that who's going to tell you what? Love wins. What does he mean by that? He means that God's love is so incredible, it's so incredible that nobody's going to hell. He would say if, if any one person goes to hell, that means God's love has somehow failed. It hasn't done what it should have done. And so he maintains that everyone's going to be saved. He suggests this pervasive, all-encompassing love that saves everyone. And they're also prepared to tell you that the primary message we ought to be sharing as Christian people is one of love and affection for all people, regardless of whichever particular sins that they might prefer and enjoy. Now, we even heard it was kind of a, a sharp word, wasn't it, brother, from Jeremiah in the Old Testament reading. God's promise. I'm going to, to cause suffering and heartache, pestilence, sword, famine against this people. Why? Because of sin. Because of idolatry. Wickedness in people who say that they know God. And so our understanding, whatever our understanding of this love is, we've got to take into account all that God has revealed to be true about Himself. You see, the problem is that these folks, they're not entirely wrong. Jesus makes it clear that the end as well as the driving force behind all our endeavors, all of our fruit is to be love. If you're concerned about Christian obedience, then strive after keeping this particular commandment. Let this be a focus of yours. Love one another. Matthew chapter 22, just for some context, and why I'm saying this commandment to love is undergirding every other commandment, every other aspect of any righteousness has love at its center. Matthew 22, read with me verses at the beginning of verse 34. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is not saying all the law and the prophets are irrelevant. Just forget about them, they really don't matter. He's saying this was the point in the law and the prophets, and all of it is hinged on this loving God, and loving your neighbor. Every aspect of obedience to God is really summed up in that. And the only way you're going to be able to love anybody else is if you love God. Paul had a similar thing to say in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. He says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Do you see what we're driving at here? That love is the reason why you're not going to covet your neighbor's wife. Love is the reason why you're not going to steal from someone. Love is the reason you're not going to kill someone. And if you don't love them, all of these things are up for grabs. All of the sin that exists in the world is ultimately a result of lovelessness. And the reason that we don't love other people the way that we ought has to do with the lack of love in us for God. And see, these progressives, the ones I'm mentioning, the universalists like Rob Bell, they're not the only ones who are likely to be drawn to a message of love. Liberal theologians are likewise interested in a Christianity which is all about love. That's something I heard constantly repeated. I've told you before about speaking, preaching at different events, one of them being a gay pride parade and rally. 
And it's all about love. Love is love is love is love. And you people aren't very loving. And we really just care about love. Free love is what the hippies used to say, wasn't it? Free love. You love everybody. Well, this message on love, that they are the, they're advocating their love is a love that doesn't really matter which sexual perversions you're enticed by so long as you love. Well, my question to you, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another. My question is, are we living in disobedience to Jesus if we begin to recognize things in the world as being sinful? Are we rejecting this charge to love one another if you call someone to repentance? And what is it that's going to protect us from falling into the trap of either the progressives or the liberals? Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. You see, the love that we're supposed to have for one another is very clearly defined. Now, it's significant to note that this love Jesus is talking about, it's primarily calling us to love everyone in, 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 in the church. It's not primarily calling us to love everyone in the whole world. Now, we know Jesus says in other places that we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So we are supposed to love other people in the world. But this emphasis, this love he's describing is primarily from one Christian to another. That's the main focus he has here. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, now why is a charge like that even necessary? Why does Jesus have to tell them, love each other? Now, parents, have you ever looked at your children in the midst of bickering and fighting and say, hey guys, love each other. Why is it that within this family structure, we're often prone towards arguing and bickering with the people we're closest to? Even we see this in a natural family, and I suggest to you it's a very sad, sad expression that Christians are guilty of being more inclined to show kindness, mercy, and grace to an unbelieving person, trying to reach them perhaps, than we are towards one another. We're more likely at times to squabble amongst ourselves over things that are just frankly petty. And the charge Jesus is making is you within the church who are connected to me ought to be loving one another. And we already read back in chapter 13, Jesus said, by, all this, by, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So the, the first reality that blows a hole through the errors of the liberals and progressive is that this love is particularly applied to believers. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't love the lost. But our special focus and attention is to be on God's people. The second way in which our text, even before us, dissolves the liberal and progressive attitude when it comes to love is this. That this love is to be defined and understood by Jesus Christ Himself. He says, as I have loved you. How are we supposed to love in any way that we think it's okay to love? Jesus says no, as I have loved you. Firstly, an impossible task. You think you're going to be able to love like the only righteous person who's ever lived? Not on your own. But bear with me. Here's the second way that our text shows us what real love actually is. You see, the problem with a lot of people that have this love wins or free love mentality as they take the expression, God is love. Is that true? Is God love? Yes, your scriptures tell you God is love. More than once, in fact. God is love. But here's the problem. Many people have taken that expression, God is love, and they've twisted it and perverted it and turned it upside down and backwards, and all of a sudden, it's more fitting in their thinking to say that love is God. You see, God is love. It's a, it's a defining characteristic and attribute of God. He defines Himself in this way. But they turn it around and they make love their God. And as they've made love their God, then they can proceed to redefine love to mean whatever they want it to mean. This is how this works. If I take this idea of love and I tell you that love, what love really is, love means that 
I don't steal. I don't steal something from you. And that's a biblical reality, right? That I'm not taking something that belongs to somebody else. I can take that reality. Well, this twisting, what it would do would be essentially to do this, to take the idea of love and say, well, you know, if you really love somebody, if you really love somebody and you're going to give them, give them all your money. Right now, where, where does that come from? How do I come up with that idea? That this is what it means. And all of a sudden I can tell you that if you're not doing this, then you're not really loving. And I can make it all up to what I've defined it to be. Let me give you, I feel like maybe I'm talking in circles a little bit here. Let me give you a clearer example of this that I trust you'll enter into. How many of you believe that racism is evil? Absolutely it is. And what we've seen in our current generation is this. It's generally accepted by most people that racism is evil. And there are those who are pushing an agenda that have taken the term racism and they've attached a lot of things to it that it doesn't actually mean. And none of us want to be called a racist, do we? And so when someone says it's racist, if you basically if you're born white, you're racist. You see how this twisting what it is, is it takes a word that we know is something bad and adds to the definition. And all of a sudden you can be manipulated and they can say, if you're not doing this, you're racist. You see what my point is? The same thing has happened with this idea of love. Let me redefine it. And then I can say to people. For example, who call me to repentance, you're not being very loving. You're not being very Christ-like right now. But what is the biblical definition? How do we understand this love in light of what Jesus says? He says, as I have loved you. Did Jesus Christ ignore their sin in the name of love? Did Jesus, was he unwilling to call them to repentance? Did Jesus Christ do whatever it took in order to make sure that no one was ever offended or uncomfortable by him? Jesus started his ministry in this way. Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus starts his ministry by a call and charge of repentance. There, there's no such thing as repentance apart from addressing Sin. Jesus begins that way and it characterizes his ministry. So here's what I'm telling you, that, that because Jesus is God and God is love, when you see Jesus doing something, you can never say that wasn't loving. You can never say of Jesus that what he did there, that's not loving. That's not how you love people. John chapter two, verses 15 through 17. We saw this some time ago. It says of Jesus and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Is it out of the question? That's something I read one time. Someone, they, they were making reference to the the old bracelets that were here in the 90s and early 2000s, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I saw someone one time where they said, next time someone asks you what would Jesus do, tell them that making a whip and turning people's tables over is not out of the question. What would Jesus do? This Jesus who is God, who is love, is stirred by zeal for the house of God to confront evil. Matthew 10.34 Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Love like Jesus, there's a sword. Or it's put in this way in Luke 12, 51. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. There's a dividing of that which is evil from that which is good. You see, the love that Jesus came to give was never devoid of conviction against sin. And it was never tolerant of evil. The love Jesus has come to give was never reduced to mere emotionalism or external sentimentalism. His love was always according to truth. Now, here's, here's the potential danger in me saying these things. I have heard people that, that, that almost adopt a, a mindset and attitude that says, well, the most loving thing I can do for someone is tell them where they're in sin. And there is an element of truth to that. 
But they use that as an excuse to beat people up and not be concerned about how they're actually treating the person. And I want to make the case to you that Jesus is what he says is according to truth. His love is always connected to the truth. But that's not to say that his love is cold, detached or void of feeling. And neither should ours be. Luke chapter 19. Verses 41 through 44. What does Jesus love look like? It's according to truth, certainly. But listen to this, beginning in verse 41 of Luke chapter 19. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You catch that? Jesus is pronouncing judgment and prophesying against Jerusalem. And it says he's weeping over it. He's speaking the truth. But it stirred him. There is a compassion in his love. It's not a strict word that's devoid of emotion. Next, look with me, if you'd like, or you can take this down at Luke chapter 7. A striking example of the love of Christ on display in Luke 7, verses 12 and 13, we read this. It says, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. The love of Christ. Notice, it doesn't say the Lord had compassion on the dead man who's being carried out of town. He sees her, the man's mother weeping, mourning, grieving. It's the tears of this sorrowful woman that stirs the Lord Jesus to go and minister to her. Raise the young man from the dead. John eleven thirty five. we considered recently as well. Jesus, in coming before Lazarus who had died, says Jesus wept. The love of Christ is perfectly according to truth, and yet He stirred within Himself, revealing to us the heart of God for His people. There's a stirring that goes deeper. It's not only the truth. It's the truth combined with the character of God that's been revealed. That God is not impersonal. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's got compassion for us. You see, the love Jesus is referring to is according to truth. It rightly deals with sin and error, and it's violently opposed to harming and oppressing and hurting other people. It's full of compassion, tenderness, and sympathy. The love of Jesus Christ is both just and it is good. And I wonder here today, when you are hurting in your soul, do you imagine that Jesus is not worried about you or that He doesn't care? There's a temptation because we understand the error of those who disregard good theology and they don't know what the Bible says and they redefine love. There's a temptation for us to imagine that God has no heart, is cruel and unconcerned and uncaring. I tell you, no. Those things are not true of Him. Verse 13, we... Continue to look at John chapter 15, verse 13. So the first thing we see, there's a command to love each other, that, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he continues demonstrating and calling our minds to how his love is defined. Verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Here Jesus sets forth a general principle concerning love which helps us to understand the nature of His love, the love He's been talking about. Now, I think we would be remiss at this point if we didn't recognize and appreciate a couple of things. 
You see, the biblical, there's a biblical virtue expressed here. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And surely we ought to be appreciative of those, whether in, have served in the military or current police officers that face difficulty every day and their, their lives are put on the line in order to, to protect others. You see, that's not to say that there are no bad apples in military and law enforcement. Or that there haven't been people who have sought to serve in order to get glory for themselves or some twisted idea of excitement and going and fighting and killing people. There, the world is full of all types and kinds of sinners. My point is that according to Jesus, there's no greater expression of love than being willing to sacrifice yourself for the well-being of others. And Romans 13, 7 says, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Nobody wants to hear that this time of year, do they? Revenue to to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. And I'm telling you, let us honor those to whom honor is owed. But don't forget that Jesus has already established that He Himself is the standard for the love He's talking about. What's my point? It's What does this idea of great love and laying down His life for His friends have to do with the love of Christ? I submit to you that all the attempts that you make to sacrificially love those around you are absolutely pointless and vain if you don't realize the love of Christ that's put forward right here in this text. In fact, our sacrificial love, the way that we love one another, is supposed to reflect His love. And more than that, it is produced by our understanding of His love. As you grow, and this is where we're going to move into the next time, but let me say this here. As you grow in your knowledge of the love of Christ for you, it's going to abound, it's going to explode and overflow into love for other people. That is the source, that is the key. You go and try to love people in your life around you in this sacrificial way without the love of Christ leading you, you're not going to last very long. You're going to grow weary. You're going to be tired because you know what? You're trying to love people who don't deserve it. And they're going to remind you that they don't deserve it regularly. You need this kind of a love that Jesus describes here at work in you, constantly stirring you, motivating you if you're going to do what he's telling you to do. Look with me. Look with me at Romans chapter five. Jesus says in our text, greater love is no one than this. As someone lay down his life for his friends. The reason I'm saying we've got to understand the love of Christ. Look with me at Romans chapter five. Begin reading in verse 6 with me. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You follow the argument here in Romans 5? It says, that, okay, Not very many people are willing to die for a righteous person, one who's upright in in that sense. And then it says, though perhaps for a good person, someone who treats you well, someone who's kind to you, somebody might be prepared to die. That's the human standard. And, And if we're honest, that's probably the way we would think about laying down our life for somebody else. You see, my wife cooks me good food. She says nice things to me a lot of the time. She's a wonderful helper in our home. There are things about her that would inspire me to want to die for her if the opportunity arose. There's good goodness in her that compels me that way. What Romans is telling us is that Christ's love, the nature of His love, is that while we were His enemies, He died for us. Undeserving, He died for us. What impact should that have on our understanding here today? Jesus defining His love. 
This greatest love that someone would lay down their life for their friends. Now, here's my question. Jesus says friends in John 15. Romans tells us we were enemies whenever he did this. Let me ask you, how do you know whether you're a friend of God or an enemy of God? Jesus tells us he calls them friends. And yet, Paul by the Spirit of Christ, empowering and inspiring what he's writing, says we were enemies. Which one are you? You see, the love of Christ that's demonstrated in His cross shows us that He died for His enemies. That we, who are Christians, were an enemy of God. And if you're lost here today, you're still an enemy of God. You are now His enemy. How can you come to have assurance That you're no longer His enemy. How is it that you reach a place of knowing your sins are gone? Knowing you've been justified? How do you come to know that you're His friend? You see, if you remain in a state of rebellion against Him, there is going to be a clash on the last day. And you will perish. I think it should do us well, all of us who are believing, to be reminded once again of this. And if you're not believing, to be stirred to think about it from Revelation 19. I'm bringing this up in light of this language of friends and enemies. That's what we're looking at now. Are you Christ's friend or are you His enemy? He tells these disciples, you're my friends. Are you a friend of Jesus Christ? And again, there's another word that can be redefined. Does our society say that friendship, to be a friend of God, what does that mean? Does it just mean that, well, I, I kind of like him and there's, a, there's something, a closeness maybe? How do we define these things? What does it mean to be a friend of Christ? What does it mean to be an enemy? Revelation 19, just listen. From verse 11, this is Jesus we're talking about here. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His enemies cast down by His might, His furious wrath. That's the picture. Are you His friend or are you His enemy? You see, Jesus' love as we're seeing, is not devoid of justice and wrath. His love is such that He calls on you though while it is yet day. And He's presented these terms of peace. Do you see? There's peace being offered here. There's an enemy of God. Jesus is saying to some people, you're my friends. And that's not true when we come into this world. There's peace offered to you. And surrender offered. You may surrender. You may sing. With the hymn writer, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. Why would you say something like that? Because this Savior is offering you peace and deliverance, friendship, love, real love. It surpasses all understanding. He says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. See, this last verse we'll look at together. Is another scripture that's easily misunderstood, especially in light of what I was just telling you. I'm telling you, you're not born a friend of God. You're born again a friend of God. You must be changed if you're going to call Jesus friend, brother, savior. Something's got to change. And I'm telling you that. And Jesus says, You're my friends if you do what I command you. Now, is Jesus telling you, if you want to be my friend, do what I command you? That's how we treat friends. If our friends don't live up to our expectations, they're not our friends anymore a lot of the time. Is Jesus saying if you want to have this connection with Him, the way to get it is to do what He commands? Well, notice again that this is not a command. 
Jesus doesn't command anything in verse 14. He's telling you something you need to know. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You see, once again, this is an indicative statement. It's not an imperative. It's not a command. It's telling you something that's true. It's true. If you're my friends, you'll do what I command you. Now, Jesus sets this truth before us in order to inform us, to motivate and encourage us and not to condemn us. Remember, he's telling us these things that there would be full joy. And if the message today coming to you is that here's how you have full joy, keep his commandments. That way, he'll want to be your friend. That's not a hopeful message. That's a condemning message, a killing and damning message. Jesus is saying, this is true, that you are my friends if you do what I command you. And in order to perhaps help us to understand what it means to be a friend of Christ, it'll help us if we consider what the Scripture says about those who are His enemies. What does it mean to be an enemy of Christ? An enemy of Christ is one who is living in rebellion to Him, to His Word, to His law, to what He's told them to do. An enemy of Christ is one who's living in rebellion to Him. An enemy is one who the Scripture says is hostile to God. You're hostile to His Word. Whenever His Word confronts you, sure, they don't walk around maybe burning Bibles. Some places they do. But the enemy of God, the one who's hostile to God, when His Word confronts them in their sin or tells them that they're not God and that they must be submitted to Him, you find out you see hostility. The enemy of God is one who's at enmity with God. They're one who hates God. They're one whose life is opposed to the will of God. An enemy is one who does not live in communion or relationship with God. And we realize that that's what it means that we were His enemies. Those things were all true of us. When we see that, that that was true before. When we see that, we realize that to be a friend of Christ, to be made a friend of God, means all those things have been changed about you. You're no longer hostile towards God and His Word. You're no longer at enmity with God. You still sin, but you're not at war with God as you once were. Essentially, we can say it this way, that we who were once enemies, we've been changed and we've been made an, an ally of God is essentially the point. A friend of Christ is no longer living in rebellion to Him. They've had the hostility of their heart washed away by the love of Christ. A friend of God has ceased warring against Him. They've come to love God. And their entire life has been taken hold of by God and caused them to adopt and develop kind of a, a Godward focus. You, you love Him. You want to be with Him. You're not just religious. As Jesus puts it in our text, you abide in Him. You have an ongoing relationship to be a friend of God, a friend of Christ in this sense. You see, He's not saying that you're made a friend by keeping commandments. He's saying that those who have been reconciled to Him, those who are no longer His enemies, those who are His friends are going to have an inclination within them towards doing what He says. Now, think on this. Which commandment do you suppose He has in mind here? Where did we start? This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. The last verse in this section, these things I command you so that you will love one another. You see, when Jesus says, you're my friends, if you do what I command you, the command he's got in mind most clearly is that we love one another. Now, how does this work? What's he driving at here? If you're a friend of Christ and your hostility against God has been done away with, if that's happened in you, all of a sudden you see the love of God for you in a way that you never have before. And as you behold other people that know that same love, it makes you love them. It drives you. And love at the foundation. First, God's love. And as that love is applied to me, it's reflected and applied to others. This is the commandment. You see, Jesus, He can't be saying, keep these commandments in order to be my friend. He's saying, if you've, if you've come to know these things, this relationship, 
This love is in you because of me. And it's going to be coming out to others. You see, the truth in what Jesus is saying is that this love, this definable love, is the necessary foundation of all other love. It is, it's not only the foundation in the sense that it's, it's what's true, it's what we look to, it's the standard. Yes, those things are true. But it's also the fountain for our love. Think of the, the analogy, the illustration he's using. Of a vine and a branch. You see the fruit? The fruit that's born is not born because the branch looks back at the vine and says, I guess that's what we're supposed to be doing. Is it? It's not us just looking to a standard and trying to imitate it. You'll go to hell if you die trying to imitate Jesus without knowing His love that saves us through His cross. It's not imitating Him in that sense. It's trusting and believing what He's done for us that justifies. And if you believe that, there's going to be an imitation that happens. There's going to be. But where's the source of our love? Just like the sap, the nutrients, the water that flows from the vine to the branch. He not only, he's not only the example of how to love, but it's His love. You think of the, the line, the song, channels only. We're channels. God uses us as a channel for His love, His goodness, and His mercy. Not to save us. But if He has saved you, it is going to be evident in your life that way. You see, our expressions of love to one another within the church are the demonstration of having been reconciled to Him and changed from an enemy to a friend. You see, the primary aim in our text is not just to call us to be nice to each other. It's not just to tell us, hey, you as Christians do nice things to each other. It's not to chase after some worldly idea of love. It's to realize there is a soul-stretching depth to the love of Christ in the cross. He loved you while you hated Him. And He died for you to prove it to you. And not only to prove it to you, but to justify you before God. And He says, the way that I died, I died sacrificing myself for people whom I love. You Christians go and live sacrificially. Lay down the things that you think you want or that are going to help you the most. And serve someone else. And not in some superficial way that just helps them materially. Lay down your, your life in service to people for the glory of God and according to truth. And not in a detached way that doesn't stir and draw your own emotions and your own feelings. This is a whole message, a whole gospel. And I say the world's love can't touch it. It can't touch it. At the end of the day, it's God's love. It's this special love of God. This agape love that says, I'm going to love you and you don't deserve it. And that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it. As a matter of fact, as a demonstration of the fact that it is unconditional. This unconditional love is nothing to scoff at. It's nothing to, to look at and say, What's the big deal with that? You go and set yourself to love someone who you know is never going to be able to earn it or love you back in the way that you're loving them. You, you, you go lay hold of that and tell me how it works out for you. That's God's love for us. And it's demonstrated in this. Jesus Christ, the One who deserved nothing but glory and honor and love from the Father, the one who only ever for all eternity pleased his father. The one who became incarnate and as a man continued pleasing his father. Never sinning, never failing. He goes to the cross. Why? To die for those who had done nothing but fail and sin and, and were enemies of God. The charge that comes to us is to repent and believe the gospel. Essentially, repentance is not, it's not limited to just doing something different. It's that you actually come to see and know I'm wrong. I've been his enemy. I need everything to change. To repent. And believe this message. I want to close by making a reference to the, the Sunday school material. And I challenge you. Every Christian in this room and every non-Christian, everyone who is not sure, that doesn't have a, a, a confident assurance that you have peace with God. 
Right now we're dealing with the doctrine of justification in the Sunday school. Glorious. Glorious. This is the reason. If you want to know as much as any other reason, this is why Luther took his stand. That we are saved by faith alone, apart from works. Justification by faith only. That's the message we're talking about. This is the message. Any of your works contributing to your salvation, you know what it means? That God's love is all of a sudden at least partly conditional. It's been made conditioned on you doing at least something. Is it any irony? Is there any coincidence in the fact that we're just a couple of verses away from Jesus saying, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to this. You're doing this is going to be true because of my love, my choice. That's what Jesus is telling them. That's what he's telling us. We ought to understand the love of God in these ways. I pray that God would be pleased to work in us by His Spirit that we would be able to love one another well to the glory of the Father as a demonstration of God's saving work that He's done in each of us. If you're one here today who's still yet wondering if God loves you, look at Jesus. Look to this Jesus. See His love. Don't, don't look to the love of God as some worldly kind of love, but as the eternal and infinite and perfect love that it is. With that, I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your love. I thank You that You use weak, busted, broken vessels God, we are dependent on You in all these things. I pray, Father, that we might abide in Your love and go forth with confidence in You. Lord, subdue our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.